Thank you, Mike. It's awesome. My understanding with his eyesight, he had to memorize all that. So, is that right? Did you memorize that? Amazing. All right, we're in the seventh inning stretch, so uh, why don't we stand for the reading of God's Word so you can uh, get a little rest here. I want you to focus on, I always look for repetition when I read, and there's one word that's used 11 times, so I want you to see if you can find it. It's a very small word, and it's the key to the text. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies." He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it, nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a slave or free. Masters do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would speak. We ask that you give us ears to hear. Speak for your servant is listening. We ask that you would apply this word down deep in our hearts, that we would see Christ, that he is the bridegroom, and we are the bride, the church. And may we take all our cues from there and learn much about how to live on this earth, how to apply these things in marriage, and in all the other relationships we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a pretty overwhelming text, and we could be on this for many, many weeks, and this is kind of a cursory uh, uh, sermon. And uh, so we're going to try and... Did you catch the word? What was the one little word? Anybody catch it? Say it loud, Steve. As. 
11 times as. The simile, if you don't catch the simile, then you, then you won't understand the text. So the idea is that he keeps saying again and again, well, how is a wife to submit to her husband? As the church submits to Christ. And how is a husband to love his wife? As, as Christ loves the church. How are you to work for your boss? As to the Lord. I mean, it just again and again, 11 times it says it. So that's the key little word to understanding this text. Many of you are probably familiar with Wayne Grudem, and if you're not, Wayne Grudem is, was the chairman of the Department of Biblical and Systematic Theology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School for 20 years. He's written a systematic theology, and he left that uh, school and moved to Arizona, where he's now the research professor of theology and biblical studies at Phoenix Seminary. Well, what brought about the change, the story goes like this. His wife was in an automobile accident and struggles with chronic pain. Well, this chronic pain living in Chicago was aggravated by cold and humidity. Well, Chicago happens to be very cold in the winter and very humid in the summer, and it wasn't a good living place for her. And so somebody had offered uh, for them to visit their second house in Mesa, Arizona, which is a suburb of Phoenix. And when they went there, she did much better on this vacation. It was hot, it was dry. And he writes about this and he says, well, Margaret, I would love to move here, but I'm only trained to do one thing. I teach at seminary and that's it. There aren't any seminaries here. The next day, Margaret was looking in the yellow pages, literally, and she said, Wayne, there's something here called Phoenix Seminary. And one thing led to another and God was at work in that seminary and it was starting to grow. And we went through this decision-making process, he says, and we were in the middle of the decision-making process. On the very day they were focusing on that, I came in my normal custom of reading through a section of Scripture each day, and I came to Ephesians 5.28. Even so, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. I thought, if I would move to take a job in another city for the sake of my body, if I were experiencing the pain that Margaret had, and husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, then shouldn't I move? Shouldn't I be willing to move for Margaret's sake? That was really the story of why we moved to Phoenix. And he says, I say this by way of illustration, husbands. Headship doesn't mean selfishness. It means being willing to give yourself for your wife and to care for her as well. And then he goes on and he, and he kind of gives some, a different uh, grid to think through of the distortions. Because, you know, if you noticed in the scripture readings this morning, I hope you noticed all the passages were about marriage. They were about marriage that Jesus is the bridegroom. We're the bride. And we've made a big mess in Genesis 3. And we are, I mean, it is a huge mess that God was walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden. They enjoyed complete fellowship with God and harmony with one another. And this unbelievable tragedy has happened. And we're all, we, it's, it's like G.K. Chesterton says, we all, were know of, we all know we're survivors of a shipwreck that went down long ago, and that we're living in chaos and a mess. And more and more in our culture, we're seeing as the young people are growing up and you, you're dealing with the younger generation, um, almost all these kids are coming up from broken families. And that, that creates uh, things you've got to undo and work out. And many of you have experienced the pain of divorce, which C.S. Lewis referred to as an amputation. This is terrible stuff. And what happened in Genesis 3 with this fall 
is they thought they knew better. And they saw this tree, and it was desirable, and it was good. And so she took some of the fruit that God said, you're not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. But she took of it. And then it says she gave to her husband, who was with her. He's right there the whole time doing nothing except enjoying the fruit that he now gives her. And then it says they went and hid themselves. They're now ashamed. And God comes walking, looking for them and says, where are you, Adam? Calling out Adam. You're responsible. Give an account for this. And he's naked and ashamed. And God gives a, in his mercy, he clothes them by killing animals. A little foreshadowing of his grace and his mercy. He makes a promise that that one's going to crush the serpent's head. But he also says to the woman that part of her curse is your desire will be for your husband. He shall rule over you. So your desire is going to be to take over. Your desire, ladies, is going to be to want to usurp. And then the husband, in turn, he's going to rule over you. He's going to be an abuser. And we got a mess. And that's part of the curse of the fall. And so all these wonderful pictures is that God is here washing us with the water. Jesus was washing us with the water this morning as we read this. He's undoing this curse, and he's showing us what a marriage should look like. And we're seeing in, in heaven when it comes down and God makes his dwelling with man and the, and the bride is ready and made ready and we see things are going to be right again. But right now we're in this cleaning up process of the kingdom come but not yet. And so this, these different, this paradigm of the different examples is you kind of have these different spectrum of the grid. You have an aggressive tyrant husband and a usurping wife. If they're both kind of dominant, we're going to have fighting all the time. And then you've got a passive husband and a doormat wife. That would be nobody's doing anything, taking responsibility. That would be the other end of the spectrum. And then you've got a tyrant husband and a doormat wife. What does that lead to? Terrible abuse and an unraveling of humanity. And then you have a wimpy husband who's passive and a usurping wife. And now what do you have? You've got chaos. <laughs> and you have all these different people on the spectrum. And the example that we're given is we're to be right we're, as a loving, sacrificial husband and a respectful, submissive wife. And so in, in the middle, you get all kinds of, of messy stuff. Now, the culture balks at the authority of this passage, particularly as it relates to marriage. But I would agree with James Montgomery Boyce, who still speaks even though he's dead. And he says in his commentary on Ephesians, he says, No good woman, indeed hardly any woman at all, wants a man she can boss around. She wants a man she can look up to, whose judgment she can respect, whose leadership she can respond to. If she does not get this in her man, she feels cheated. So what's clear in this passage is that husbands are called to sacrificial love. And this headship, you're not commanded to be the head of the home. It's indicative. You are the head of the home. And this headship is never to be tyranny, it's to be tender. It's not to be lording it over his wife, but rather laying down his life. 
And the wife in return is called to loving voluntary submission, not because of chauvinism, not, but because of God's creation, which I'll explain more in a minute. Not because she's subordinate, but because equality doesn't mean that they have the same role. Martin Lloyd-Jones described marriage, I've used this many times, as an earthly display of a heavenly drama. That marriage on earth is an earthly display of a heavenly drama. And what he means is that marriage on earth is a picture of something much, much greater. And Paul says it's a profound mystery in verse 32. This is a profound mystery. It's a, in Greek, it's a mega mysterion. This is a mega mystery. This is about Christ and the church. That the husband is the head as Christ is the head of the church and gave himself up for her. And the wife submits to her husband as the church submits to Christ. And so God gave this marriage on earth to illustrate the beautiful picture of redemption. The husband being the loving head. The wife showing affectionate submission. And that's where all these similes come from. Now something has happened in our culture in the last hundred years. Marriage has skyrocketed 700% in the last century. 700%. So people that rail and don't like this authority structure and they don't like what it's saying, well, what the world is offering is not really a whole lot better. It's a lot worse. Our sinful flesh misses this beautiful picture. Our culture recoils against it and the devil does everything he can to ruin this picture. Years ago, in the 70s, there was a book written by John and Nancy Williamson, and it was entitled Divorce, How and When to Let Go. So this is a non-Christian book, secular book, and and this is kind of the, the ethos of what the world is promoting. And they say, I would love, uh, this is what they say. They said, yes, marriage can wear out. People change their values and lifestyle. People want to experience new things. Change is a part of life. Change and personal growth are traits for you to be proud of and indicative of a vital searching mind. You must accept the reality that in today's multifaceted world, it's especially easy for two persons to grow apart. Letting go of your marriage, if it's no longer good for you, can be the most successful thing you've ever done. Getting a divorce can be a positive, problem-solving, growth-oriented step. It, it, It can be a personal triumph. It's like getting, I mean, basically like getting a new car. If it doesn't run well, we'll just trade it in and get a new one. It is just selfishness. So ever since the fall of man, this picture that God had designed of this beauty of Adam and Eve in harmony, naked, unashamed, now we see it's cracked and marred and distorted. And so man, on the one hand, in this vacillation of the fall, who's made to be a steward, Now he wants to, on the one hand, he wants to be owner. He wants to take charge. He wants to be this dominating person who's uh, authoritarian. But on the other hand, he's very passive. And man doesn't want to do anything. He doesn't want to be steward. He says, ah, you can be be that. And now we want to tinker in our hobbies and in our sports and getting into other things. But we're not studying what the Bible says about what does it mean to be a godly dad? What does it mean to be a godly husband? What's it mean to have a godly family? And we want to study about best nutritional diet and how to have big muscles and and how to have great endurance and how to have successful job and career and, and lots of other things. But we pull away from what's needed. 
I was talking to a college student recently, and um, this is, he was not from our church. I try not to use illustrations too much from people in our church, or nobody would tell me anything. <laughs> be afraid you, you'd be afraid you'd be an illustration. Anyway, this young man um, is growing in Reformed theology. He's considering the, the ministry, and I was talking to him, and I was asking him some pointed questions about, tell me about your relationship with your dad. And it, it was bad. It was so bad. He, he, he just said, well, I come home. He says hello, and that's about it. I was like, well, you really got to work on bridging this relationship. God has brought you to Christ, and how can you start to bridge the gap? I said, could, you could start texting him. And he looked at me puzzled, and he said, I, I don't know if my, if my dad has texting ability on his phone. This is a 21-year-old kid, lives an hour, two hours away from home, away at college, and he's telling me he doesn't know if his dad has texting. He's not, this is not a broken family. This is a family that's together. This is a dad that has never sent a text to his son and a son who's never sent a text to his dad. That was just horrifying to me. Where are we, men? Are we leading our families? Are we reaching out? Are we praying? Do we care? The husbands here we see are called to love with this sacrificial love, but it's also a sanctifying love. Jesus was all about meeting the spiritual needs of his bride, the church. I was really touched reading 2 John recently. And 2 John begins with, I, John the elder, to the elect lady. Here's John the Presbyterian, the elder, to the elect lady. Guess who the elect lady is? It's the church. And, it's, and you look it up in the Greek and you realize, wow, this is the feminine word for Lord. The Greek word for Lord is kurios. The feminine is kuria. To the elect female princess, to this exalted status. He's writing to the church and her children. That's us. We are the bride. And we see that Jesus radically loves his church. And what we see of Jesus is he washes us with the water of the word, and it says he nourishes and cherishes the church. And so husbands are to do that now and to nourish and cherish their wives. The only other place this word cares is used, or cherish, it's used in 1 Thessalonians 2.7 when Paul's describing his ministry, and he says, we were gentle among you like a mother taking care of her children. That's how Paul describes his ministry, and that's how we as husbands are to treat our wives. Nourishing and caring. And so for the wives, what's interesting about this passage is, is neither one of these is contingent on the response of the other. And so often what you hear and when you get frustrated is like, well, if he would start doing this, then I'd start doing that. And if she'd start doing this, then I'll start doing that. If he would start, if she would just respect me, I'd love her. If he would just love me, I'd respect him. That's the crazy cycle. And that's not what the Bible says here, is it? It just says, regardless, this is what you're to do. And so the reason we read this whole passage together was to show that mutual submission 
doesn't work because we're called to, it, to be filled with the Spirit. It lists these four different participles. And verse 21 is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he gives three examples of submission. What are the three examples? It's a wife to her husband. It's a, it's a child to their parent. And it's an employee to their employer. And I'm not going to get into masters and, and slaves and, and the cultural, but it's not slavery that we interpret into, this, into the 18th century, okay? You've got to get that out of your head and realize that one half of the culture was enslaved to the other, and the slaves often were, were actually made more money than free men in a Roman society. But So what we're dealing with here is an employer-employee relationship, a father, or ch- parents and children, and wives to their husband. And so, but we get to marriage and we say, well, we really like this mutual submission. We want everything to be on a horizontal plane. And I entitled the sermon, The Over and the Under, because all three of these examples are examples of God has designed authority structures. And we know this innately. I mean, you get on an airplane and the flight attendant comes over and says, you need to put your seat tray up. What do you do? She's in charge. I mean, or, you know, all right, put it up. I mean, I mean, Muhammad Ali was on the plane once, and he said, and she said to him, you put your seatbelt on. And he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she said, Superman don't need no plane. <laughs> and he put his seatbelt on. So we understand innately that there are authority structures in society. And even Muhammad Ali needs to listen to the flight attendant. But so here, the, the reason that mutual submission doesn't work, okay, is because if you were to take that to its logical conclusion throughout this text, you would have to say that wives and children have an equal vote just as much as the father on family decisions. Is that really what we want to say? That everybody's just an equal contributor and everybody has equal input? And, and a son or a daughter has as much input as a wife? on a family decision, or to husband, we're all just mutually submitting. That's not what the text is saying. We try to make nonsense of the text if we do that. The other bigger problem is the whole picture of the as-is is the church responds to the lordship of Christ. And we submit because he's the head. We're the members of the body. And now the illustration is applied down that this is now the husband in this illustration is the head of the church. And so if mutual submission were true, then we would have to say the church and Jesus have equal authority. And I don't think we want to say church and Jesus have equal authority. Is that what we want to say? No. And so we have to recognize then that a couple things. And I think what the culture wants to say is... um, is that uh, submission equals oppression. That's what the culture wants to communicate, okay? And that if you really believe in some type of submission, then there can't be any equality. I say that's just nonsense, okay? And this is what a book, all, all We're Meant to Be, here's another book that came out in the 70s, and this was, and it says, many Christians thus speak of a wife being equal to her husband in personhood, but subordinate in function. However, this is just playing games. It's a contradiction in terms. In terms, equality and, su- and, and subordination are contradictions. All were meant to be Scarzoni and Hardesky. Well, if if that's true, then I guess Jesus 
doesn't make any sense because Jesus is perfectly equal with his Father and he's perfectly equal with the Holy Spirit. And yet what we see in the model of the Trinity is what? Jesus says about the Holy Spirit that he shall glorify me. And the job of the Holy Spirit is always to put the spotlight on Jesus. He's the shy member of the Trinity. And there's never any, if it's a Holy Spirit church, it needs to be a Jesus church. But if there's more about the Spirit than there's about Jesus, it's not a Holy Spirit church. Because the Holy Spirit's got a big spotlight on Jesus. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit always subordinates himself to give the highlight to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? In his whole earthly ministry, he comes to do the will of the Father, to submit to the will of the Father, to speak the words of the Father. And we have this verse in the meditation quote from our bulletin, if you take a look at that. It's just one little verse. And it says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. The head of Christ is God. This is the verse the Jehovah Witnesses will come to your door with and show you, see? And we make a theological distinction between uh, the economic role of the Trinity and the ontological being in essence. Okay, those are big theological terms and it goes like this. That ontologically, that refers to in essence, we, we say, and we, we're, we're convinced from Scripture, we see all these references to Jesus being worshipped that Jesus says, I and the Father are one, that Jesus is God, and that they're the same in substance, equal in power and glory. They are completely equal as God. And we worship the Son, we worship the Father. And one isn't greater than the other. That's ontologically, in their essence, they're one. And yet in their function and in their role of redemption, Jesus takes on the errand to go and save humanity. And he comes down and says he becomes uh, a slave even, a servant taking on humanity. And he comes to save us from our sin. And even in doing so, it says he was submissive to his parents in Luke chapter 2. And he embraces this so that in the role of redemption, Jesus is completely honoring his father. And so they have different roles. And so the, if the Trinity has different roles and yet they're one, now 1 Corinthians 11 3 says that's how it's to be in marriage and takes the same imagery and applies it to marriage. And so we, we would say in, in essence and in being, male and female are created and given the command to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And that's just not given to Adam. That's given to Eve as well. That's, that's to both. They're both called to take dominion, to rule. And in Galatians 3, in redemption, we see that we're neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither male nor female. Slave nor free, you're all one in Christ Jesus. So there's no superior Christians at redemption. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And yet there's different roles to play. And so God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And Dan Doriani in his book, Life of God Made Man, I like how he explains it. He says, you know, think about this. I'll make a helper fit for him. And chauvinists say, see, this proves that women exist to help men. And the feminists say, no, it shows that men need help. (laughs) 
And then he says this, the point is simpler and happier than the debates of gender warriors would suggest. By calling woman a helper, God does not imply her inferiority. Rather, God often calls himself Israel's helper. And the Holy Spirit is called our helper. And helping does not imply inferiority. For the stronger we are, the more we can help others. I can help my children with their math or science if I know more than they do. And they know that that's not true. That's why they never ask me. They, they, go, they go to their mother. But when they know as much as I, as I, my capability to help diminishes. And if I know less than they do, I can hardly assist them. So to correct chauvinists, we say God designed women to help, but you have to be strong to help. Thus, to correct feminists, we say God designed women to help, so you should be willing to help. So there's equality, yet we have different roles. And so the way that that works itself out is wives are not to usurp authority or to undermine authority, but to look for ways to serve so that the husband can lead, to make suggestions rather than commands. Some of you are familiar with Thabiti. I guess that's how you say his name. He's a black pastor in Anacostia. Came out of Mark Dever's church. And he has an article in the Gospel Coalition talking about his wife. And she was meeting with a lady in the church, and, and she wanted to talk about submission and what that meant. And basically, he says she was really giving her objections. And uh, Thabiti and his wife, they like to dance, and they like to salsa dance. And so somehow in the conversation, they turned to salsa. And they were talking about salsa dancing. And the, and the lady uh, began to articulate that... Um, Basically, that the, the way, the only way salsa works, this is what he says. He says, our friend explained at length how, and, and this is the, the lady who disagreed with submission. She said, she, she explained at length how critical, a good, how critical a good male leader is in salsa. It makes or breaks the dance. The woman must follow if the dance is to be enjoyable. And after several mi- minutes of our friend's lecture on male leadership in salsa, He says, my wife very wisely concluded, so you do understand submission. (laughs) You have the illustration. Now, I would just say for us in closing that the only way this works is we have to submit ourselves to Christ. And that involves uh, a complete surrender. Kim and I recently read a book called When God Doesn't Fix It by Laura Story. And if you guys are familiar with her story, she, and she's the one who sang the song Blessings um, and how God's trials are his mercies in disguise. It's a wonderful song. But her story is that about a year into marriage, her husband got a brain tumor. And when they went to remove the brain t- tumor, he then got um, meningitis and then... Uh, Man, I'm not a doctor. What do you call when you get fluid on the brain? Encephalus? That, whatever the word is. I'm going to blank on it, mess it up. He had swelling on the brain. They basically had, they already had a hole in his nose. Then they had put two more holes in his head. So he's got three open holes in it, and he coated on the table and almost died. And when he came to, he basically lost his short-term memory. And so every day was starting over. And you wouldn't believe how much of your life is by memory that you know, okay, when I go into this room, lift up my foot or I'll trip because it's a little higher. Well, imagine tripping every single day because, you know, or coming out of the bathroom and not knowing whether to go left or right. They lost him once on a ship because he went to, the, went to the bathroom and he didn't know which way he'd come from because his short-term memory is just not there. So this is her life now. This is a year in a marriage. I mean, 
he, no, no short-term memory. I mean, just... So life got very, very hard. And she says, when Martin and I said, I do, we set out on the boulevard of marital bliss. Then came a bumpy detour called brain tumor. We took the detour and followed its winding ways, but I kept thinking the detour would lead us back to the main road. It took me several years to realize it wasn't a detour. It was the road. And she says, we often think about worship as the songs we sing, but the truth is that worshiping God's about surrender. Surrendering to God's will when it doesn't match ours and when we're too impatient to wait for him. Surrendering that which is most important to us and surrendering our personal story to live out our part in God's greater story. Worship is surrendering everything to God. Valuing God so much that we're willing to let everything else go. And so that's in our work environment, in our parent relationship with our children, in our marriages, or whether we're single, whether we're divorced, whether we want to be married, whether we want to have children or can't have children, or we want to adopt and can't. I mean, all these things, it is surrender. That's where it starts. We lay everything down at his feet and let God be God. Then we're able to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are making all things new, that you are fixing this horrible mess that we have created. Thank you that your grace is greater than our sin, and you're making something beautiful out of this chaos. We thank you that we see your mercy and love. We look forward to no more sorrow, no more tears. And we want to follow you in the now as our Lord and Savior, embracing the cross, the difficult things in our life. Help us, Lord, to live out this text. We can only do it by your Spirit. Wash us with the word we ask today. In Jesus' name, amen.